1: and glory, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I hope you're getting ready for a wonderful conclusion to the year. The best way to end the year is with the Hillsdale Dialogue Extended Edition. Yes, I want you to visit the Salvation Army. We've done very well this year. Thank you so much for your generosity at the Red Kettle. I appreciate it. It's still up at HughHewitt.com. But it's that time of the year when I visit all of history. This is our Steelers fan special. I call on Hillsdale President Dr. Larry Arn to sit down with me, and we sort of bring you up to speed if you have not paid attention to any of the Hillsdale Dialogues, any of them all, and they're all collected at u4hillsdale.com. All things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu. We use the last broadcast day of the year and the first broadcast day of the new year to begin at the very beginning. It's sort of like a sound of music song. A very good place to start, uh, Do Re Mi. And then you go all the way through to the present day. And you do so with a mind so brilliant and with an interlocutor so precise that at the end of these six hours of radio, you'll say, I should have gone to Hillsdale and Dr. Arn should have been my teacher. He's an extraordinary genius and boy, Hugh brings out the best in him. But don't forget, while you're listening, go get the book, The Fourth Way. Now we turn to our walk through history with none other than Dr. Larry Arne. Dr. Arn, welcome.
2: Nice
1: to talk to you, Hugh. Now that's now that you've become so famous. <laughs> that's quite an introduction. I hope you can live up to that introduction. Probably not. Now, tell us before we begin about Hillsdale College, because uh, people need to know what you are about every day and why. I I actually asked him to do this because of his captaincy of Hillsdale. Tell them about Hillsdale.
2: Hillsdale is uh, a liberal arts college. It's the kind of thing where almost everybody used to get their higher education. It's a small place in southern Michigan. It was founded uh, 16 years before the Civil War by a bunch of patriot Christian scholars uh, they were very uh, former. Uh, they, they came to the forefront of American life right away. Uh, the chairman of the first Republican National Convention in 1854 was a member of our faculty. We helped to found that party. Uh, we had more boys fight for the Union Army in the Civil War by a factor of two, as far as we can tell, than any college in America except West Point. Nearly all the boys went and fought in that war. I was just over at our library a few minutes ago, and we've just bought a collection of papers uh it's called the Kincaid collection one of our students uh went off to fight in that war and there's a big correspondence between him and various people here uh he fought in three major actions and he eventually died of a disease in a southern prisoner of war camp and it's very touching and i just spent 30 minutes reading those letters it's an amazing thing now- I
1: called you to help me with this project because I do believe a lot of people are now going to put down what they were doing and turn off the football games. And listen, what did you think when I called you about this project?
2: Uh, I thought it was crazy. Why? Well, um, it, uh, it's more important, in my opinion, it's, uh, this is an important part of the tradition of liberal education, to know a few things well than it is to know a large number of things. And I also believe that there are very few people who have ever been born who are capable of knowing a large number of things well. And we're going to talk about a large number of things. I'm going to talk about a couple of teachers of mine at the beginning, and I'll explain a little more why I think that. And most of the things that we're going to talk about I know a little bit about, and and uh, I'll try to be as accurate as I can. I have a kind of a framework for understanding most of those things, which comes from the things that I know a lot about. And so one thing I would say to the people who are listening to this is when you start your education, or as you continue your education, excuse me, putting it that first way, as you continue your education, remember to focus on some things. Pick things that are high and noble. Uh, Pick great events or great people or great books and learn all about them. And you'll find that that's more valuable than getting a great sweep of things. And also it's possible to do. Whereas getting a great sweep of things is extremely difficult to do and maybe impossible to do except for a few great minds. Now, getting a
1: great sweep of things is not what we intend to do today, more of a taster's choice of what people might decide to go deep into. That's very different from promising them that they will know a lot of things at the end of this.
2: That's indeed, indeed.
1: Now, let's begin with your teachers and why you asked me to begin with Harry Jaffa and Leo Strauss.
2: Well, the greatest. The wisest man and the most learned man that I ever met is Harry Jaffa. He's a professor at, in Claremont. He's a professor emeritus now and a distinguished fellow of the Claremont Institute where I used to work. And he and Leo Strauss together and a few other students of Strauss, I think, uh, are heavily involved. They're vital to a recovery of knowledge that had been more or less effaced. Uh, and that I think a recovery of that knowledge is underway now and I think that it's vital to all kinds of things that have to do with our intellectual life and also with all the other parts of our life. Um, and I also believe this. I think that to learn, unless you're a very extraordinary man, you need a great teacher. And the, the Harry Jaffa is mine. Uh, I never met Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss was his teacher. Strauss was a man born in Germany, a Jew, in 1899, uh, he fled Germany eventually when Hitler came in. He was part of the of the uh, educational system in Germany that produced Martin Heidegger, a very great man and also a member of the Nazi Party and therefore also a very questionable man, but known for brilliant works of philosophy, mostly on the question of being. Um, Strauss came to a kind of a rebellion against that because what he came to think, was that the modern world is dominated by two doctrines that are fatal to freedom and to uh, the pursuit of truth. The first one is relativism, which is the doctrine that if a person thinks a thing is right, that is the source of its rightness, if there is any source. And the second one is historicism, and that is the idea that, that each age involves a kind of an evolution of the human consciousness and perspective. And the standards of right, of good action, tend to flow from the age. And this gives rise to all kinds of things, like the political movement that seeks to perfect the society. Uh, Hillary Clinton said one time famously, our mission is to change what it means to be a human being in the 21st century. And it turns out that she said that at the University of Texas in the commencement address in June of 1993, and it turns out that that's a big project and takes a lot of government to complete it. Yes. And it also changes the nature of government because it has a different account of the nature of man in it. Uh, the government under this dispensation is not so much organized to respect our rights, which rights come from our nature, which is a fixed thing. All of a sudden, our nature is evolutionary, and we are the creatures who have the particular ability to get control of the process of evolution. But that turns out to mean, if you think for a minute, C.S. Lewis wrote brilliantly and famously about this. um, That turns out to mean not so much that the human race is in control of physical nature around us, as it means that some human beings are in control of others. And, And so seeing all that, seeing all that unfold in part in the Nazi project, which was a form of this historicist utopianism, Leo Strauss rebelled against that. And he led a movement and prosecuted it brilliantly in his own life to turn to sort of say, we need to start over. Let's go back to the first thinkers. And those thinkers are to be found in the Bible and the prophets, and they are to be found in the first philosophers. And let's think again about who we are and what we are to do. He came up with an approach to philosophy that was a Socratic approach. It differed some from some of the earlier philosophers before Socrates, because as Cicero said of Socrates famously, he called philosophy down from the heavens and made it inquire into the things of men. In Strauss, you see an urgent investigation of the question how should we live? What is the right thing to do for us? It's what he calls political philosophy. And Strauss is the father of a movement which involves a re-examination of the whole of modern philosophy by the method of going back to the classics and Strauss was a very great man his books especially two books that I prefer among his books but they're all really worth reading some of them are very difficult Um, the book The City and Man uh, is a wonderful book Um, and his book Natural Right and History which in the paperback edition has on the cover uh, a, a, a picture of a section from the American Declaration of Independence. Uh, those two books are wonderful to read and fabulous introductions, both to Strauss and to the problem of a thinking person in the modern world.
1: We will come back to that problem to Leo Strauss, to Harry Jaffa, and to our conversation as we introduce you to a sweeping grasp of Western civilization with Dr. Larry Arnn, President of Hillsdale College, on this The Hugh Hewitt Show. <laughs> Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. On this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, I am joined by the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arne. When we went to break, we were talking about the political theorist Leo Strauss, a refugee from Germany who took up residence in the United States, wrote some wonderful books, invented a movement, or rediscovered a movement, and his student, Harry Jaffa, who turned out to have been the teacher of our guest, Dr. Arne, we're about to embark upon a long walk through. Uh, the great thinking of Western civilization, but we're starting with these two men. Why Strauss? Because he rediscovered a tradition. And why Jaffa, Larry Arn? Well,
2: Jaffa is, is uh, one of the first students of, of Strauss, probably the first one who really became his lifelong student. And Jaffa, well, he's a very talented man, as I say. I never met Strauss, but Jaffa is the wisest man I ever met. And um, Jaffa turned to the study of America. And he is the man, above all, who has explained, in my opinion, how America fits in this tradition of the West and in this crisis in philosophy that has occurred in modern times. Jaffe is—he's is written two wonderful books on Abraham Lincoln. He's written a book on Aristotle, uh, or on Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, and he's written several books of essays that are. Fabulous to read, including especially one of my favorite things he ever wrote, called "Conditions of Freedom." Um, Jaffa is is the foremost scholar alive on Abraham Lincoln, and on the meaning of Lincoln. And with him, you get into this interesting thing: um, America begins with a proposition about the truth. America is a very unusual country; it has a birthday. Countries tend not to have birthdays, at least if they're old or great countries. Um, and the birthday is, is uh, marks the celebration of a document, a, a document published to explain what the country means. Uh, we'll talk about this more if we actually make it far enough along to get to Thomas Jefferson. Um, we will. We will. We will. Hugh is determined.
1: I have, determined a, I I have a switch wants. in my hand. You bet there we you will. Go.
2: So Jaffa began to try to figure that out, and he began it, On the basis of an understanding of classical political philosophy and the difference between that and modern political philosophy, Um, which difference he understands in a different light late in his life than he did early in his life. Um, I want to tell a quick story about him as another admonition to the listener uh, about what we're doing here. Jaffa, the first class I was ever in with him was in 1974, late in August, and it was on Aristotle's Ethics. And he began the class those many years ago, saying, uh, I can remember it almost verbatim, when a man gets to be an old man like me, of course he's still alive and thriving today, uh, he said, they begin to make the list of the hundred greatest books. He said, I believe that life is too short to read a hundred books. But I have a list of the three greatest books. And one of the books he, he held up, he said, this is one of them. He seemed to say after that that Plato's Republic was one of them. And then he became ambiguous, and it seemed like either the Bible or Shakespeare was the other one. But uh, he said, this book is a perfect book, he said.
1: Meaning the ethics. book
2: that has a message for all time, Aristotle's Ethics. Um, in thinking about the, ja- about the Declaration of Independence, Jaffa wonders, wh- what is the meaning of the proposition that there is a self-evident truth and that there are laws of nature and of nature's God? Where do those propositions uh, take their, their foundation? What is the meaning of those laws? How do we know what they are? What if somebody claims something is a self-evident truth and another person claims it's not so? Is it still self-evident? Is the ground of self-evident consensus? Or is it something else? And, and Jaffa explains that as well as I have ever heard it explained many times, I've heard it, I had to hear it many times before I could repeat it, uh, as also bound up with it is an understanding of human reason, and of the relationship between man and God on the one hand, and man and beast on the other.
1: You've got to repeat to learn things like that. Stand by, more Dr. Larry arn coming up as we do our walk-through history on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Let me repeat, by the way, since we're talking about repetition. The Fourth Way is my new book. It's at HughHewitt.com. It's available in bookstores everywhere. you got to get it. you got to read it. you got to be ready to support the Republicans and the new president as they rush forward with the Fourth Way faster, please. We get you ready by showing you all of human history at all feathers into the Fourth Way. Go get the book during the break and then come back with Dr. Larry Arn. Hugh for Hillsdale.com or Hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America, to you at our end of the year special, the last broadcast day of the year we always give over to the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Aron, president of Hillsdale College. This year we're walking from the beginning of civilization to its end, but pausing along the way for the high points, one of the very highest points being the Declaration of Independence, the American ode to freedom and to uh, the proposition that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Dr. Arm, we were talking about that. We went to break
2: it's a very famous thing in the founding of america that the last letter that thomas jefferson ever wrote uh, is an explanation of the declaration to a man named roger Whiteman, and he says in that letter some men are not born with saddles on their backs nor others booted and spurred by the ra- grace of god to ride them so that means that men are not like horses and in the declaration of it- itself the name of god appears four times once is each branch of government, once is the founder. And the distinction between uh, man and God is the distinction of superior and inferior. And that is also the distinction between man and beast, with man being the superior. Man is the middle being, and because he's the middle being, he is entitled to a certain kind of government, government that respects his rights and government that, uh, that proceeds according to his consent. If you think about that for a minute, That's a recovery of the idea of nature that emerges during the course of classical political philosophy. And Jaffa's achievement, among many others, is to show how that has operated to make our country so successful and so just and so great. Now, I want to
1: ask you, Dr. Arne, the... The key thing here, before we launch on all these thinkers, you've just talked about teachers, Strauss and Jaffa, is how do they teach? What, what was it about them that made you able to get a little bit, if not more?
2: Well, Jaffa, Jaffa. of course, I didn't study with Strauss. and I, I know that I've, I've read the notes, class notes, of many of Strauss's classes. Strauss was a very organized lecturer. Uh, Jaffa was not at all like that. Uh, Jaffa would sometimes read out letters that he'd written to people and talk about how he's smarter than they are for some of his students that would sometimes be frustrating Um, Jaffa knows certain texts as well as anyone knows them and on the occasions when he would go through them it would be brilliant and it would also always serve to remind them of some great thing that he would explain Uh, he was at his very best when he was argued with I mean he still is uh, he likes to be argued with. He's famous for being polemical and for fighting with people all the time. He fights with his friends all the time. He fought with me many times over the years. Um and 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 I remember once uh there was this would happen a few times. We'd have a class at three thirty and it was supposed to end at five thirty and sometimes it would go till seven. And once it did because um this young woman in the class was whacking him about how all this stuff was just vague and meaningless and and uh, what did it matter whether you knew about all this stuff and he started out by telling her a story from Plato's Republic about the ring of Gyges. and he said uh, imagine that you had a ring to put on your know, the lord of the rings is opening in in uh, um theaters tonight and this is this is has elements of the story in that wonderful series of books in that movie which i hope is good um and he says in there he says uh, What if you had a ring to put on and it would make you invisible and you could go anywhere you wanted to go? You'd be very powerful. What would you do with that power? How should you use it? And it became very compelling, and it took an hour, two hours. It kept going. And before it was over, he was explaining the difference between a man and a dog. And we were sitting there in a state of excitement like I, I promise I've never been in in a really great movie. And it was two hours and two and a half hours. And he was saying what it is to be able to reason and why that is a divine quality. What's different about that between what a man and a beast can do?
1: We're going to begin now with the oldest book in the Bible. I'm not sure whether it qualifies as the oldest book ever, but Job was penned first, at least according to most biblical scholars. Why bother with it? Larry Arn.
2: Well, Job is an Interesting book of, of the Bible, and I'll just talk about some of the problems it raises. It's a very remarkable story. It begins with a conversation conversation between God and the devil. That's a that's an odd thing to happen, and it's kind of a it's kind of a negotiation between them, and a and the devil is taunting God a little bit. It's kind of like they you know they converse, and uh, it it. That's not exactly the relationship between God and the devil that goes on in other books of the Bible, which goes on most extensively in this book. Um, uh, Satan says to God, here's this fellow, you know, and you think he's really great, and he's a very good man, but of course you've given him everything. So why don't you take it away and see if he's really good? And that raises a problem. That problem runs, if you just abstract from... The fact that this is a divine account, uh, that is a problem that occurs in the first book of Plato's Republic, too, for example. It is the problem is, uh, what is the connection between virtue and reward? Um, Job is a just man, and he has flocks and a fine family, and he prospers and he's happy. But would he still be just if he didn't have those things? Uh, the argument begins in Plato, uh justice is the interest of the stronger says Thrasymachus who's a man who makes argument teaches people how to make arguments for hire has in, himself an own uh, his own commercial stake in that argument um, the 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 book then the action of the book is that God agrees with the devil to a test, and job passes the first test and then there's a second test and the and the second test is. More severe, and it, it involves the death of Job's kindred, their destruction. It involves the destruction of his property and his home, and it, it involves ultimately personal affliction to him, disease and discomfort and soreness. And the question is always, will he still love you if you, if, if he meets with evil? And of course, tempters come to Job in human person
1: form of his friends, that's right.
2: And encourage him to falsely confess his own sins. And Job, interestingly enough, won't do that. The specific thing that he's asked to do is to confess that he sinned when he is not. So this is a story about the vicissitudes of life and how they fit with God's providence.
1: But why read it, since we are not often going to be the subject of a conversation between the devil and God, at least, that we know about?
2: Well, we all have the problem of facing the vicissitudes of life. Uh, things might go badly for us. And what about that? Um, how are we to react to that? Uh, how are we to understand those the, the troubles when they come upon us? There's a New Testament account of those troubles, which is they are a trial to test us and prepare us for heaven, rather like uh, the Jewish people after they left Egypt were forced to wander in the desert in part to get the slavishness out of them. So they'd be fit to occupy the the promised land, Uh, especially since occupying it ended up requiring fighting, which requires the virtue of courage.
1: Well, we come then quickly to a a central question. Vicissitudes of life, yes, but why not read any of the self-help books as opposed to Job? I mean, they're up to date on the science at least.
2: Well, the difference between the self-help books and Job, just to start with, is Uh, Job has lasted, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, they do not, uh, except insofar as they are reflective of the deep problem that's revealed in Job. And that is, are these troubles of life around us evidences that there is no God, and that there is no authority up to which we should look, and which we should obey, come what may? Life is a involves trials. The question is, what is our attitude to those trials? And in Job, we see the classic, the first statement of what that attitude should be. Job is as good as a man can be, because in answer to Thersimachus' question, show me that virtue is better, even if virtue wins dishonor and trouble, and vice wins reward and honor. Show me that virtue is better. Job is the man who says, yes, it is, and shows by his action that he believes it is. He is an early, the first, and an unrivaled representative of faithfulness to God.
1: And now we must uh, we must apply the switch, because we must reach through the Bible in Genesis and Exodus and cover both Genesis centrality and the stories of Abraham and Moses. Begin, Dr. Arndt. Why do we care <laughs> about Genesis? I know why, but you tell us.
2: Um. Well, Genesis is the biblical story of the creation of the earth. Um, it's a very interesting story. Of course, uh, there are seven days. Uh, the culmination of creation is the sixth day in the creation of man. A man is the the Lord of creation, to use an ancient phrase. Uh, he is uh, the, the highest thing in creation, by the by the Genesis account. And and uh, um, he is uh, it. it The story begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, There's a tradition that says that Moses is the teller of the story. And that tradition comes from two things. It comes from the fact that we're not told who tells the story, and the fact that it is said of Moses in Exodus that there is no prophet like Moses before Moses. So he would apparently be the man to whom things are revealed that no man can have witnessed. Um... The story of Genesis is the story of, of God um, giving rise, not begetting, but giving rise to the heavens and the earth, and then giving a command to the things that grow from the earth to grow, with some implication, perhaps, that this is to be a natural process. And, and, uh, and the story is, uh, um, you know, we are to understand ourselves as creatures and creatures take something from their maker and have some obligation to their maker. Uh, the, the position of Genesis is that we are made and that we are made in the image of God, and from that one may derive how we are to be. So it gives an account not only of our origin, but also of our end. And, uh, and it's not a philosophic account, It's a revealed account, but it is an account of everything. Um, So you have to read it for that reason.
1: And you have to continue to read with us all of the great works of Western civilization. Every week at this time, and on the last radio hour of the week, I do the Hillsdale Dialogue. They've all been collected, all four years' worth. You can binge listen at HughForHillsdale.com. But this day and the first broadcast day, Monday of the year, Extended Hillsdale Dialogue And I encourage you to listen to every minute of it Just as I am encouraging you And I remind you again My brand new book available at Amazon.com The Fourth Way A conservative playbook To a lasting Republican majority The Fourth Way can be ordered at Hugh Hewitt.com Right now stay tuned I'll be right back with the Hillsdale Dialogue On the Hugh Hewitt Show Last broadcast day of the year Don't go anywhere Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Don't forget our Salvation Army red kettle is up and ringing. Don't forget as well, it's an extended Hillsdale Dialogue. Today, the last radio day of the year and the first radio day of next year, we always give over to Hillsdale Dialogues with Dr. Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. All of these dialogues collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com, and we are in Genesis, the first book, the most important book in many people's eyes. We're talking Genesis with Dr. Arn.
2: The story of, the, of Genesis begins with creation, and it proceeds to a state of perfection in which men lived and from which they fell by the intervention of Satan, who appears in the numerical order of the Bible first in this book. And man falls, and the fall gives rise to three things. It gives rise to the expulsion from the garden. It gives rise to the flood, which is the destruction of everyone except the one just man remaining. Who, unlike Abraham, does not protest much about that. Abraham does protest when Sodom and Gomorrah are to be destroyed. And then it gives rise after the flood to the first covenant, which is in Noah's saying, I won't do this again. But then it gives rise to the division of us into nations, because we all speak the same tongue, the Bible says, and we try to build a great tower to reach up to heaven, to reach to God, or rival God. And for that reason, we are divided into the nations. Now, Abraham constitutes for Jews the father of the Jewish people, and for Christians and others, he represents the claim that all are ultimately the people of God. And the specific thing I want to mention about Abraham is that God makes a covenant with Abraham twice, and the covenant is, I will make you a great people, and I will be your God, and that people you and that people will be my people, and I will give you a land to live in. And this shall be a blessing to all the peoples on the face of the earth. Yahweh, in the Bible, is the first of the gods who proposes himself as the god of all of the peoples on the face of the earth, as the one god. And his choosing a people is a thing he does for that people, who through their history will be his representative. But he does it for the sake of us all. And that is apparent in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, for example where God makes the covenant in Genesis seventeen, it's not stated explicitly, but it's implicit there, where he makes the covenant in those three places. And twice it says, and this shall be a blessing to all the peoples on the face of the earth. Moses, uh in the Genesis and Exodus stories, Moses appears first in Exodus. God's people have taken possession of the land of Canaan, and they are living there under Jacob, renamed Israel, and he has twelve sons who give rise to the twelve tribes of Israel. And one of them is sold off to slavery in Egypt. And the effect of that is they all end up in Egypt because there's a great famine. And he is sent there, it appears, in the providence of God to preserve them through that famine. After Joseph dies, a very able man and a key and a key counselor to the Pharaoh, the Jews become slaves. And the, the second great chapter after the forming of the Jewish people in their history is their exodus, hodos that means uh, the road out. Hodos is the Greek word for road. Moses the son is a prophet, to bring the people on the road out and to bring them the law and the law is of course ultimately the Ten Commandments and Churchill writes a funny and beautiful essay called Moses which is good reading in a book he wrote he published called Thoughts and Adventures and there he once describes Moses going across the desert from his exile back to Egypt to organize the Jewish people at God's command to get out and he says it was a man, an old man, two women and a donkey if I remember right the greatest expeditionary force in the history of man.
1: (laughs) What do we need to at least cling to as a beginner about Moses, Dr. Arn?
2: Born into a Jewish family, escaping a purge of the firstborn sons by his being put in a basket and raised in the family of Pharaoh. Raised, in other words, at the pinnacle of the world. Discovering in his youth and glory his connection to his real family. Rebelling against the slavery... Uh, against a particular incident of slavery. He kills an Egyptian oppressor, flees for his life across the desert, does his service to win his bride, returns back as the voice of God, a reluctant voice of God known as the stammerer. He is the greatest of the prophets uh, because he is the man who met God on Mount Sinai, having brought the people out of the land of Pharaoh, and received from God the tablets of the Ten Commandments. He was a man of massive strength. Energy, faith, reluctant to be a leader, but appointed by God so to be. And he is the, the, the man who brought to us the Ten Commandments, which, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing that uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, when it sits on its bench and makes its ruling against prayer in schools, uh, is looking at a uh, mosaic or a carving in the wall of Moses holding the Ten Commandments. Hmm. And I think it's. Uh, handy and right, that he's a reminder that uh, to them, if they would just look, that they ought not to do that foolishness. And who knows, because he's there one day, maybe they will stop.
1: Moses, the lawgiver, really is the tradition of law giving that we will then be spending a lot of time on, and it's really not been improved upon much.
2: It's a very interesting thing that, of course, in the biblical perspective, the law is given. God is its source, and God reveals it to us. We don't think it up. We don't discover it by our unaided reason. It is carved in stone and carried down by a prophet and shown to us. And if we touch the ark in which it is born, we will die. It's uh, protected by the ultimate punishment, and it is enforced by that punishment, and the wielder of that punishment is God himself. And that's right. And it's an interesting thing that the source and the sanction for the law is a little different in the Bible and in a theocratic state, I hate that word, but I can't think of a better one right now, than it would be in, say, a free government like the United States of America, in a way.
1: And in that way, we will break for this hour. We'll return, Don't Go Anywhere America, to the special edition with Dr. Larry Arnold, of Hillsdale College and me, Hugh Hewitt, on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, glory, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the last radio day of the year, and we always give this over to an extended Hillsdale dialogue. You know that the last radio hour of every week is a conversation between me and Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues on the faculty and staff at Hillsdale. All of them have been collected for year's worth at hue 4 hillsdalecom You can go and binge listen. You can watch the online courses of Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. But on the last radio day of the year, and the first radio day of the new year, we always walk through history. We began last hour with the Declaration of Independence in Genesis, and now we begin the fourth march through the great works of Western civilization. From Genesis, we move on to Homer. I should mention as well a new great work of Western civilization, The Fourth Way. My new book has Joined the Canon. But really, the canon begins in Greece.
2: Yeah, Homer is... a uh... Homer is 900 BC, and the events that Homer describes most famously, uh, the only evidence that we have for them that's certain, is the fact that Homer described them. Uh, We don't know for sure that there was a Trojan War, and we don't know for sure that Odysseus wandered on his way back from that war, and so we don't know everything we would need to know to know the truth of the claims of the Iliad and the Odyssey.
1: Does that matter?
2: No, not at all. Those are, uh, it's like the question uh, uh, who wrote Shakespeare's plays? Was it Shakespeare or Bacon or somebody else? And Harry Jaffa, whom we talked about before, he used to always say it doesn't matter whoever it was, was pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, we have these two epic poems, and they are fabulous descriptions of character. Um, they are understood in herodotus and Thucydides, the first historians, we're going to talk about them in a minute, to be events that gave rise to the greatest wars before Rome, the wars between the Persians and the Greeks. And uh, um, uh, the basic story is that a Trojan uh, steals the most beautiful woman in Greece, Helen, and the Greeks join together to go and get her back. And this is told in the form of a long poem, an epic poem.
1: It's is a hard good, to read poem.
2: Hard to read? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I haven't found it so. Um, I think it's exciting. You know, it, it, I'm a boy, and it's a war story. You're a boy too. You should know. You should, you should know that you. Yes. It's uh It's a big. It's a lot of fighting. The characters in it are wonderful. Achilles and Hector, for example. Take those two. Achilles is uh, very full of himself. He's a really great fighter. You can think of him like you think of George Patton. Uh, he was born for the battlefield. He's at home there. Uh, ordinary people don't quite understand a fellow like that. And, of course, he goes too far, because when he does kill Hector, who's the greatest of the, of the Trojan heroes, he drags him around behind his chariot and, and defames him. And that leads to his destruction, finally.
1: To Achilles' destruction. Achilles' right. destruction. Because he angers the gods.
2: That's right. He does. And and he does that. The gods had protected him by letting him being dipped in a river and uh, made immune to harm on the battlefield by that. Uh, but his heel is... His mother holds him by his heel. and That part's not covered up. So he's killed by an arrow in the heel. He... The relationship between the gods and men is interesting in in the Iliad and the Odyssey because they they are multiple, the gods, and they have partisanship among the men. Um, And you want to get one of them on your side. The stronger, the better. And you have a kind of an international relations between the gods and the men. If your god is more powerful uh, than than another, that's to the good. But you don't want to make the other two angry either. And the coalitions that happen up there turn out to be... uh, Influential. Um, the the uh, the, the uh, Among the most important things in these fabulous two epic poems is the studies of the people, because one of the reasons to read literature is to find out about people. What are they like?
1: But now you've walked past the, the difficulty of the poem. It might not be difficult to you, but I'll stand with my audience and say, no, wait, we've picked this up. This is a hard poem. Why bother?
2: <coughs> well... I guess because um, it's it's old, uh, there's that, and you should read books from other periods because it takes you out of your own, and teaches you, it gives you a perspective that'll let you see what's permanent. But also because it is this classic confrontation, and you know, human life is a story both of harmony and confrontation. The harmony born in the capacity of human beings to talk; they're more gregarious than other kinds of creatures. Um, but also more apt to fight, too. Um, and, and you see all that work out, you know, and what, what's the distance now? It's 1,900 years ago. No, 2,900 years ago. You see all that work out in, that po- in those two poems about as they work out today. Um, there are these resentments among these people. They go to fight over a matter of honor. They fling each other at each other, Furiously, in the end, uh, canniness and shrewdness are the methods of victory. The Trojan horse and Odysseus who's very wise and also an effective liar. Um, so it, it is a beautiful dramatization. It's like reading Shakespeare. It doesn't matter when it was written.
1: But then what you're saying is that we need to be canny, shrewd, a good liar, and if uh, if possible, be dipped in a river.
2: Uh, and, and also... Uh, the claims of honor. It's an interesting thing about the, this, the, about the war between the Persians, between the Trojans and the Greeks, that it matters very much who's in the right to both of them, and they have the same standard of right. They're killing each other. They're, they're, they're bitter enemies. But this is a famous argument from C.S. Lewis, which is displayed here as well as anywhere in anything ever written, that apart from the fact that they're at war with each other, it's amazing how far they agree. If Helen was stolen, they all admit that that was wrong, but the Trojans say that she was not. And, and uh, uh, if there has been an offense of one against the other, then, the other, then whoever committed the offense should pay. There is a uh, demonstration there, not just of the way of human affairs, but also of the standard outside them, that human affairs is subject to. And all who participate in human affairs have an agreement about that, implicit or explicit. This is an interesting book, by the way, because to sort of zoom ahead a little bit, it's not like the philosophic works. In no sense can you say that this book is an examination into those higher questions that loom above and help us understand the behavior of all these people. They make speeches about honor. They make speeches about right. This book is not an investigation, a questioning of those speeches. It's a presentation of those speeches in a dramatic adventure story. And and it's not it's not written with a philosophic eye. It is a little bit like a history book. It's it's not so different from Herodotus. But it is didactic. Oh yeah. It's trying to
1: teach you to be cunning and shrewd, to lie when necessary, and to have the gods on your side.
2: Respect the gods. Commit no evil and uh, cultivate your talents, especially those that involve fighting and rule.
1: But then our friend Odysseus is as cunning as cunning can be. You use the word. I agree with it. And that is, not, you know, that is not something one would take away, for example, from the Bible to be cunning.
2: Well, there are passages in the Bible, that, uh, both in the Old and the New Testament, that adjure us to cunning. Uh, wise is a serpent and harmless is a dove. And, of course, there are always stratagems going on in the Old Testament. For example, uh, persuade the people of a village to be circumcised uh, as a condition of you're not attacking them. And then while they're sore from that, rush in and kill them
1: all. And kill them all, yeah. Well, and then what is, with a minute in this segment, what is the critical understanding of either the Iliad or the Odyssey or both about men? Uh,
2: well, the Greeks are better. Uh, they... They, they defend honor and the right. Uh, they are brave warriors. They are cunning fighters. Uh, they do not give in. The Trojans are a worthy opponent. Uh, and in war, it's important to be in the right, to have the gods on your side, and to win.
1: Okay. Then I want to begin with Herodotus, the first historian to bridge to the next gap, since we still have 45 seconds left.
2: 45 seconds. Yes. Herodotus is the first historian. He tells the story of the greatest of the ancient wars between the Greeks and the barbarians.
1: Do you like this book, Herodotus' Histories?
2: I think, I think it's wonderful.
1: It, it's, it's full of just absolutely absurd suggestions of real events which could not have happened. Like what? Oh, I'll come back after break and tell you. Okay. You're supposed to tell me.
2: Okay. I'm well, trying I'll...
1: to reach back through. Thirty years to remember what it is that he described. Uh, for example, the Persian king murdering, serving the uh, his offensive uh, satrap, his son for dinner.
2: Oh yeah, well, that's probably that's also in Titus Andronicus. <laughs> it probably <What>? happened.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out more with Dr. Larry Arn. President of Hillsdale College. I'm not going to argue with him too much. Like I say, I have him here for a reason. I ask the questions, he comes up with the answers as we continue your education in the matters of Western civilization to start the new year on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Back America, it's Hugh Hewitt, Voice of Reason in the West, joined on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show by Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College, as we use New Year's Eve and New Year's Day to update you on everything you've missed and perhaps set the table for your dining again on one or more of these wonderful classics of Western literature. We're telling you now about Herodotus and his history. A little bit of history, Dr. Arndt. We're dealing here with the Greco-Persian Wars. They are preceding the great civil war of Greece, which gives rise to so much of of uh, Tacitities and the uh, and the events that follow, Persia was the overarching empire that Herodotus observed. And why did he write this down?
2: Well, it is it is the first book of history. That is to say, an account of the story that is neither fictional, poetic, nor uh, uh, partisan. It's uh, it's supposed to be the story of what happened, standing outside that story and telling it fairly. Um, it is, uh, it's, uh... it is, in my opinion, a wonderful book, and it begins with an exploration of the difference between Greekness and barbarism. You know, the term barbarism comes from the way the Greeks thought other people talked. It sounded like they were saying ba 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 ba, and uh, it was, it, it's a kind of a derisory term. Uh, it, um, and and Herodotus begins by standing outside that. Uh, it's as if he's just weighing up the various stories. He says that the war begins. You know, the Persians are under Xerxes. Uh, they are a one man despotism. Uh, rule is hereditary. The word of the king is the law. He is the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. Uh, freedom of any kind is unknown. Uh, he, he meant, uh, Herodotus begins by saying that the conflict starts with the, with the disagreement about this Trojan War. Uh, they think it's wrong to abuse a woman, do the Persians, but they think the Greeks just went overboard. Why would they have this massive war about one woman? And they don't seem to give account of the fact that Helen was so beautiful. She was to the Greeks beauty itself. In a way, they were fighting for beauty. It is, the, the, I didn't mention before, but the Iliad is really a kind of a romance, too. And, and it is about men looking above themselves, the things for which they should sacrifice this is unknown to the persians the greeks are also by the way their famous poets and their famous liars <laughs> and the and the persians are not poets and they are not liars they believe that honesty says herodotus in the opening pages is the highest of things but then a very great curiosity is is uh, revealed in the first few pages um he says that the greeks believe the persians believe that it should be unlawful to think anything that it is unlawful to do. Then he goes on to say, and they believe that this is not only effectively able to be carried out, but that it is effectively and universally carried out. So, he says, for example, when a law is broken that is thought to be uh, the, the most important kind of law, they always deny that it actually has happened. For example, they say, when a case arises of a child killing its parents, they deny that he was really their child. He couldn't have done it. So you see a nation, which is a perfect kind of tyranny, they, they believe that the will of the king can become the will of every other person. And that, that's why Xerxes whips... The Hellespont and beheads all of it because you know that he builds a famous bridge across the Hellespont to get his army over to Greece, and the bridge, while being built, is destroyed by a storm, and so he commands the Hellespont to be whipped, the the sea, and then he throws shackles into it, and then he beheads all of the engineers. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and he begins, he, be, he, he goes over. I was unaware of that part of the story. Oh, yeah. No, it's amazing.
1: <laughs> it's not his, good engineering practice, by the way. Go ahead.
2: Cyrus, a river drowned uh, one of his favorite horses. And so Cyrus caused canals to be built all around the river so that it was reduced to a series of tiny little streams to weaken and punish the river for having drowned one
1: of his horses. I think that's the way that Larry Arn actually runs Hillsdale College. I think that might come back after. There's this little stream in the middle of Hillsdale. Maybe it was a river once. I don't know. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues available at HughForHillsdale.com and everything Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. We'll get to the bottom of that. I think Dr. Arn damned the river. I think he was doing the Cyrus the Great thing. Don't go anywhere. It's our last broadcast day of the year special. HughForHillsdale.com Welcome back, America. its the last radio day of the year. Hugh for Hillsdale.com, where all the Hillsdale dialogues are collected, but we really binge out on the last radio day of the year and the first radio day of the of the new year, doing a march through history to get the Steelers fans up to speed. I also am selling my new book, The Fourth Way Hard. It's over at HughHewitt.com. It's in Amazon. It's in bookstores everywhere. But we were talking with Dr. Larry Aaron about Cyrus the Great
2: when we left. Now, Cyrus, his whole strategy in the war... There are two opposite things, and and by the way, it is a fabulous story. He takes a huge army. The numbers are greatly exaggerated by Herodotus, but never mind that. Historians, they gave rise to the long tradition of historian exaggeration. I myself am doubtless guilty of it on many occasions. (laughs) He takes a huge army over there, and he believes that they will simply bow to the necessity of that army. He has the Spartan defecting king along with him. And the Spartans are the bravest of the Greeks. Their whole polity is organized around the virtue of courage. And they're the greatest warriors for 500 years. And the Spartan defecting king keeps saying to them, they are going to fight you. And he laughs. He thinks it's funny. They can't. We've got them outnumbered. And then, of course, he has the famous battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Greeks, that is to say 300 Spartans, plus about 10,000 others, many of them getting away on the last day, and the, and the Spartans, including their, one of their two kings, Leonidas, Leonidas all Leonidas. remaining to die, they confront this Persian horde. And see, the reason it's okay to exaggerate the numbers of the Persians is that without saying as much, if you read carefully, Herodotus has established that they are, in principle, a horde, a society organ ra- organized around the idea that the will of one is the will of all. And that's not human, you see. Whereas the Greeks are human. They live as humans are to live.
1: But you've got to explain that their king is not like the other king. Leonidas, or, or Leonidas, as you say, is, is not like other kings. Sparta is not like other kingships in that regard. It is governed by uh, much Two. more than
2: well, the Sparta, kingship. Sparta is organized around laws from Lycurgus that are very severe. Yes. They basically make the there's a ruling elite called the Spartiate. Every male citizen is a full-time soldier. He has no other occupation that this gives rise to a systematic system of slavery, much, much uh, wider and more perverse than in any of the Greek cities. Whole societies are held in slavery, so that the Spartans, who are unconquerable, as I say, for four or five hundred years, can spend all of their time training. And Spartans have two kings. Uh, the officers, all the citizens, and all the senior Spartans, exercise often naked with the troops themselves, to establish a kind of a fighting equality between them and respect between the officers and the men. And on a battlefield, for all that time, there's nobody like them. They, the Battle of Thermopylae is actually a kind of a spectacle put on for Xerxes to teach him them. Like Xerxes at one point asked the Spartan defecting king, why will they fight? There's nobody behind them to whip them and make them fight. And the, the defecting king responds, basically, you don't understand. Well, the Battle of Thermopylae is a kind of a theater. The Spartan king, Leonidas, is down below fighting just like any of the men. Xerxes is up above on a dais watching. He's getting his education.
1: I've never read this start to finish. I've read it often and frequently. By the way, uh, Dr. Arna, have you read the, uh, the, new bo- uh, the new novel by Stephen Pressman called Tides of War, which fictionalizes this? I have, yes. It's a fine introduction to a very difficult book as well. well. But,
2: you know, better still is Gates of Fire. Yes, which, it is a which magnificent book. The Battle of Thermopylae.
1: But I I never I knew what that was about, but I had no idea of sort of the character of Alcibiades well because that, those weren't the parts that we've studied. Now tell us why people should read the history.
2: Well, the the Greeks are the greatest of the ancient peoples. Uh, the Rome if you, if you regard that the Romans are the ones who bring us into the Christian world. Um And the Greeks are the first people to value freedom. They don't value it in quite the sense that we do, uh, but they don't mean equality by it and universal freedom, but they mean freedom for the citizens. And they have this vibrant society in which philosophy is born and some of the world's greatest literature and art and sculpting are born and in which the thinkers confront for the first time the questions of how a man should live. We'll get to that. Uh, there's this enormous energy in the Greeks, and of all of the people that the Spartans, that the Persians conquered, and they conquered all over the world, um, there was this tough, stubborn little people in this small area, and they couldn't break them. They were fierce. And, of course, the effect of the banishment of the Persians, which really happened at the battle of at two battles at Thermopylae was a kind of a spectacle battle, but then, and then it wasn't that many people involved, but then on, especially at Salamis on sea, the Persian fleet was destroyed by the Athenians who had abandoned their city uh, to take to their fleet. And, uh, and uh, they, they uh, destroyed the Persian fleet at Salamis and then at Plataea uh, in Thebes, the Greeks, all united and led by the Spartans, took on a superior Persian sport for force and destroyed them there. And that was the breaking of the Persian ambition to dominate all of Greece. Now, the, the the Peloponnesian War comes after that, and it comes after the Athenian Empire is founded and the Spartan Empire, which is much smaller and land-based, in mostly on the Peloponnese, the uh, peninsula island at the bottom of the. Uh, um, of the uh, Greek mainland, um, these two are now very great, and they start to come into conflict. And the differences between them drive the conflict. The Athenians, I said famously, have abandoned, in the middle, uh, basically in the middle of the Peloponnesian uh, of the uh, Persian War, an oracle tells Themistocles, their ruler, to uh, go to hide behind them to. to Shelter behind the wooden walls. Well, many of the walls of Athens are wood, but he interprets that to mean the ships. And they actually abandon their city, a very remarkable thing to happen in the ancient city, and they take to the sea. They are the great seafaring nation. They're the ancient equivalent of the British Empire. And uh, they're all over the Adriatic and up into, uh, toward the Black Sea. And they... uh, reach everywhere and there's a system of alliances between them all and and those systems gradually come to revolve around sparta in the south and athens a bit up the way to the north and east and uh... uh, they come to clash and thucydides account is a wonderful thing as you say uh... in some places it's well, I'm not going to say that. It's it's a it's a very very fine account, and one of the things that's remarkable about it is it gives rise to a tradition of recording public speeches as a way of revealing the nature of men and their regimes. Uh, the Spartans and the Athenians have various rhetorical confrontations, and uh, um, and in these confrontations and in the events that that follow from them, the real war confrontations that follow from them, in the breaking of alliances in the in the uh, in the uh, battles themselves, in the rising and falling of various rulers, especially Alcibiades. One comes to understand the nature of these two cities, which are both brilliant expositions of the possibilities both of Greek life and of life generally. The uh, Spartans are very warlike and very insular, and uh, and very dogged, the Athenians are far-reaching, ambitious, filled with pride and honor, also turbulent and changeable. The Spartans are ruled by traditions, the Athenians, and by this tight military society. Uh, the Athenians are ruled by the changing of, a, of, of democratic politics. Dr. Arm, what
1: do we need to know about Plato to start this?
2: Well, Plato. In in Plato are found the authoritative accounts of this man, Socrates. And Plato, we 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 might talk about them as a group, sort of Plato, because we have all down, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. Okay. Plato and Aristotle were students of Socrates and well known to each other. They were friends. They had some important disagreements. Uh, one of the disagreements is about the forms, their relation to matter, and the idea of the good. Uh, I don't think we'll go into that. Right now, because <laughs> uh, because maybe I couldn't, and for sure I couldn't sufficiently to make it clear to all of you. Uh, but let's talk about the broad things. Um, Socrates says Cicero, who didn't know him, a Roman who comes later. We'll talk about him. He says that that uh, there is this change in the idea of philosophy. Philosophy means the love of wisdom. Philos, love uh, philanthropy. Uh, I was about to say philander, it does come from that Um, And uh, sophos, wisdom It's not the possession of wisdom, it's the love of wisdom It's the pursuit of wisdom And the question is, and and philosophy begins with knowing that you don't have it The the basis of philosophy is a little different than the basis of faith Um, The question is, what are the questions for philosophy? What should it think about? Uh, Should it think about the physical nature around us? To think about the origins. And Socrates' answer to that question, which is revealed above all in the Platonic dialogues, is um, it should think about what you should be doing because you are a necessitous creature who lives a life and the life will come to an end. And the way you spend your time is itself a statement about what is the best thing. And so you should take up the question, what is the way for a man to live? What is right? What is good? What should you do? Socrates is the one who turns philosophy to those questions. And in his classic form, philosophy is an examination into that.
1: Now I have to ask you about Socrates, though. He did not show up in a toga in a, in a uh, uh, the equivalent of a, of a bar room. He was first a warrior.
2: That's right. He fought in the Peloponnesian War.
1: And, and that gives him a special status, doesn't it, as a philosopher?
2: Well, let me think about that. I, I can't think of any others who fought in wars, um, but I bet there are some. He—he. He, this is true. Politics always turns. You know, you have to understand politics, you have to understand this, that the law has a monopoly on force. Today in America, uh, there are people under arrest and... We can't. It's so difficult even to understand what their names are, and some of them are going to be put in front of military tribunals, and some of them are likely to be shot or hung. And if you got a parking ticket tomorrow, and you resisted the officer, ultimately the entire force of the state could be called into play to subdue you. The law is a very serious thing, and its sanctions are very high.
1: And that is hold that thought. We'll be right back, Dr. Larry and Ar- Arn and I of Hillsdale College. The Hillsdale dialogue continue. The sanctions are very high. The full weight of the state is large indeed. As are the number and breadth and depth of the Hillsdale dialogues, all collected. You for Hillsdale.com, all things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. It's our last radio day of the year. We're getting up to speed on everything you need to know. Really, everything you need to know. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt on the last radio day of the year. I hope you're getting ready for a fine New Year's celebration. We celebrate this way. On the last day of the old radio year and the first day of the new radio year, we sort of do a binge on Hillsdale Dialogues. All of my Hillsdale Dialogues with Dr. Larry are collected at HughforHillsdale.com. All things Hillsdale, collected at Hillsdale.edu. But they really began... As they ought to have begun in Genesis and in Athens, and right now we're talking about Socrates with Dr. Larry Arn.
2: To ask questions. You see in the in the case of Socrates, is itself potentially a rebellion. You say that it's wrong to practice your religion if your religion asks you to fly airplanes into buildings. But I say it's right. And what if my saying that incites somebody to do that? Am I culpable? Maybe today, just as much as in Athens in the 5th century B.C.
1: You're, you're working up to the fact that Socrates, of course, executed by the state for asking questions.
2: That's right. And you see, to raise questions about what is the right way to live calls into question whether you know. And so all of the accounts of what is the right way to live are subjected to some questioning.
1: But the question I raised for you about Socrates' special status is... It's at least founded, in my view, upon the fact that he had fought, was a warrior, had seen death close at hand, and therefore was positioned by experience as well as re- reason to ask the toughest questions and also, have students.
2: Also, it gave him two things. Since he's going about this enterprise, he has an authority to prosecute it because he has done his service. Yes. It's not just that he's seen death. In the end, everybody sees that. Uh, some people see more than others. Everybody sees one. It's also that he had done his service. His was a position fundamentally loyal to the Athenian state, if standing outside it as well. And the disposition of Socratic politics is not rebellion. It's not a pursuit of rule or, or of a substitution of one form of rule for another. It favors the kind of rule that permits the asking of questions.
1: So what is Plato's answer on how we ought to live?
2: The answer is uh, complex, because uh, Plato wrote, all that we have from Plato, unless the letters are genuinely his, which may be mostly what we have from Plato, let's put it this way, is dialogues, in which Plato himself never appears, and in which there's a long argument and there are many points of view stated. But this much is true of Plato, that in Plato it is established that the enterprise of philosophy is the highest enterprise, and that the good of that enterprise gives rise also to a kind of politics, a politics more liberal, to use that word not in its liberal versus conservative sense, but in its original sense, than had been known in many cities. I'd say that is something of the doctrine of Plato.
1: Where should they start?
2: They should get uh, Alan Bloom's translation of the Republic. And begin there. They should begin with the Republic itself, and after they have read it, they should read his introduction and also Leo Strauss's essay, Plato, in Strauss and Propsy, The History of Political Philosophy.
1: You said in Part 1 of this program, Dr. Arne, that uh, your great teacher, Harry Jaffa, held up the ethics and said, now this is a great book, one of three that he thought were a great book. Why?
2: Well, the, the ethics is, first of all, it's a treatise. It's a statement, it's an article, it's a book, written in the name of its author, different from anything we have from Plato. And it gives an account of what is an ethical life. And it, it begins by the statement, I think we spent three weeks reading the first um, the first sentence of Aristotle's Ethics in Harry Jaffa's class, and I can tell you the four Greek verbs to this day, although I've forgotten nearly every word of Greek I, re, I ever studied. <laughs> I studied a fair amount, but I, I don't remember any of it. But I can never tell you the four operative words. It says, every praxis, every technē, every pro and every dunamos. That means technique is like technology, technical. Praxis is a practical action. Uh, Dynamos, like we get the word dynamic from that. And pro that's a voluntary and deliberate act. What he really means is everything that human beings choose to do seems to aim at some good. So the good is rightly said to be the aim of all things. And the question becomes, how do we serve the good? What is the good? What is the highest good? What is the purpose of life? And he asks these questions in the first three or four pages, and he answers them. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, my little Katie, who's now about to graduate from college, just got offered a big scholarship from the University of Dallas. We're all proud of her. She'll probably get some from some other places, too. And I'm trying to get her to come to Hillsdale, but I haven't got that done yet. I remember she used to be little, and she'd cry sometimes. She'll be mortified that I'm saying this. And she used to say, Daddy, why just, I just want to be happy. Why don't you let me? And I'd say, you're too young to be happy. First, you have to learn to be good. And so if you ask one of my kids to this day, what is it to be happy? They always say, to be good. <laughs> and then they sort of look at me and roll their eyes like what kids do at their fathers.
1: And then I hope you didn't send her to a room with the ethics.
2: <laughs> 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 She'll never study it really ever,
1: then, if you did that.
2: <laughs> he, he describes that. Uh, so so you, you learn a structure of thinking about ethics as a, as a way to think about them and give an account of them. What do they mean? What are they? There's, uh, in the book, there's the division of the virtues into the intellectual and the moral. The virtues that are moral are all means between extremes. Courage is a means, is a mean between cowardice and rashness. It's not courageous to throw your life away for nothing recklessly.
1: And it is not temperate to go beyond our appointed time. and we are out of time for this hour. Stay tuned for part three on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Okay, it's Hugh Hewitt, the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio day of the year. And the first radio day of the year is always devoted here on the Hugh Hewitt Show, not to partying or preparing to party, but to bringing you up to speed with what ought to be your New Year's resolution, to be better read, to be wiser, to be better prepared for the world. No one better to do that with than Dr. Larry and my friend, the president of Hillsdale College. The last radio hour of every week, all year long, is devoted, almost all of them at least, to Hillsdale Dialogues, all of which are collected at hugh dot hillsdalecom All of the online courses of Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. But at the end of the year, the last day and the first day, last day of this year or the first day of next year, we really go through history at a speedy run so that you can get up to speed on what it is that we talk about when we talk about the West. And we're back in Greece now, and we have to go back and pause a little bit on Aristotle. Dr. Arm. we really gave short shrift to Aristotle in Part 2, didn't we? We did. So I want to begin with a little more Aristotelian tutoring here. Um, he has the means as the guide to the ethics, uh, to the moral virtues. You were there when we left off because of time constraints.
2: But he also yeah. wrote a book about politics. He did. And uh, Aristotle's Politics, um, there's a, it's a wonderful book to read as an as introduction to the study of politics. It, it doesn't help you understand American politics perfectly, but it's a prelude to that. Uh, I, I would say American politics or free politics or liberal politics perfectly, but it's a prelude to that. Uh, in, in Aristotle, man is a naturally political animal. Uh, politics grows up in man in the same way that, that uh, um, herding grows up in people. It's, it's his way. The specific thing that makes a man a human a human is his ability to talk, logos. Uh, Jesus, we'll talk about later in the book of John, is identified as logos. Logos is the Greek word both for speech and for reason, or as we say in the Christian era, the word. And, And it is the possession of this reason that makes man more gregarious than any other kind of animal. Horses are gregarious, but they don't talk to each other. They don't deliberate about the highest things. Politics is authoritatively about these highest things. Implicit in politics is an account of what is right. And the regimes, the political regimes, differ in their accounts. Uh, Aristotle wrote, apart from the ethics and the politics, many works, some of them are biological, a beautiful thing called the anima, or, or in the Greek, that's a, actually the Latin title, but on the Greek, Perisuke, which means on the soul. Uh, he wrote it, the physics and the metaphysics, he wrote the Parts of Animals, and, and uh, he wrote uh, several constitutions of cities, most of which have been destroyed. But each one of them, uh, the ones of Athens, survives. But they are, uh, both from the ones that we have and from the, the accounts that exist or the ones that, that, that we've lost, um, they have in common that they are investigations into the nature of the regimes, weighing them up against each other to see what is implicit in their claims of each other politics depends upon that aristotle gives a kind of a systematic account of that as well as of how politics grows up of what its rightful purposes are of the different kinds of the regimes and how you can you can weigh one against another and see which ones are just uh, he gives a, uh, a schema in the politics uh, between the kinds of regimes regimes may be ruled by one by many or by few uh, if they're ruled by one and they're just, they're called monarchy. And if they're ruled by one and they're unjust, they're called tyranny. Similarly for the few, they're called aristocracy, which means Ariston. uh, Plato was the son of Ariston. Ariston means best. Plato was very well born, Mm. unlike Aristotle and Socrates, as far as we know. Um, uh, Aristocracy is the rule of the best. Oligarchy is the rule of the few. Uh, and then, and then, democracy—the word for bad rule and good rule—in democracy is the same. Uh, in Aristotle's world, democracy cannot be a very good form of government, but it might not be a very terrible one either. Huh. And and the word demos, which means the tens, that that itself is revelatory of of the origins of Greek politics, because in the ancient city in its first form. The gods were particular to each city, and they were the gods of the leading families. And of course, uh, as it happens, sometimes families have more than one son. And the younger sons will then go on and have children, and ultimately the sons of the younger sons, it's like Churchill was the eldest son of the second son of a Duke of England. So Churchill was a commoner. If his dad had been born a few months earlier, he would have been a Duke highest kind of peer. So the few families who are the oldest and the highest families, they come necessarily to be outnumbered by the by the lower families. And in military matters the lower families were organized in ranks of ten deems. And the demos came to be known as the many. And democracy is the rule of the many. And in Aristotle that 's a flawed form of rule, necessarily flawed, maybe not however simply unjust and and uh, if you read the politics, you get an introduction to how politics works, and you get account an account of its naturalness, the fact that people have always been organized in political societies, and it is there it is because of the way of them, because of their nature that they are so organized over
1: the centuries, this study of politics moved in its center of gravity from Greece to, of course, the center of gravity in Rome. And that's the transition we're going to make now. I don't want to jump immediately to Cicero, because that would short the Roman Republic, which crushes, crushes Greece and, and spreads across the known world, all under, would you call it an aristocracy?
2: Well, the, Rome is... Um, well, there are various things to know about the Romans. They start in those hills up there in the, in the middle of Italy, over over toward the western side, and they become gradually a very fierce people. Um, uh, Virgil writes of them that they are the descendants of the escaped Trojans. Uh, there are various, and there's the myth of Romulus and Remus, uh, two boys, two brothers, suckled by a wolf. Uh, and of course, Romulus is the namesake of Rome. And they're an ancient people who became very tough in the wars among the hills in central Italy with their neighbors. And they, they like the Greek polis, or the Greek city-state. They formed an element of citizenship, which meant a wider form of rule, which also gave rise to strength. Uh, you know, if you have, uh, uh, there's this wonderful author, which I urge you all to read, called Victor Davis Hanson. He's famous now, and he's all over the place. He's,
1: he's been on this program, yes.
2: Yeah, The Soul of Battle, and most recently Carnage Cultural and Culture, carnage. Or fabulous books, and and he writes that. Uh, if you want people who are really good at killing other people, really fierce at making war, then what you need to do is get yourself a bunch of people who are free, who are equal citizens. Because when they get united, they're just impossible to deal with. And Athens and Sparta are examples of this in different ways. And Rome is an example of this. By the way, if the Taliban had read Professor Hansen's books, perhaps they would have mended their ways before their destruction. Because they actually made the terrible mistake of taking us lightly, and Osama bin Laden was a great uh, ret- rhetorician on the subject of how corrupt and and uh, weak and uncertain we are. He had only met Bill Clinton um, but he had not read Professor Hansen, and it's uh, people more like Hansen writes about who are over there right now put him in his cave anyway yeah. um the the uh, The Romans were such a people, and they conquered Italy and they had a long series of wars with Carthage. They had disastrous losses in Italy with Carthage, and it was their way, after they had them, the most famous of the disastrous losses at the Battle of Cannae, it was their way to raise another army immediately to attack them again, and indeed, to send expeditionary forces across to Africa to attack them in their homeland. Ultimately, they destroyed Carthage and began the conquest of the world. They conquered the Greeks, where the Persians had not been able, Uh, The Greeks by this time had already been conquered and united under Macedon, just north of Greece. And they began to conquer the Mediterranean world, then up into Gaul to the German border, and then England, and some of Scotland, and Wales. And uh, the Romans, they kept for much of this period of time, while they were conquering, the republican form. Which, in the classic world, means a form of mixed rule, in which the well-born, and the many, and the one, all have some share in the in in the rule. The Senate would would appoint a consul or two, uh, executive officers. In the, in the in the much of this period, would be appointed out of the uh, the uh, Senate.
1: When we come back, we're going to talk about. Probably Rome's greatest theoretician, Cicero, and how he viewed the Roman Republic, even on the eve of its destruction, as a great legacy that we can continue to mind. Don't go anywhere. It's Hugh Hewitt on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Part three, our guest and guide, Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College in Michigan, will continue as we move to Cicero on this New Year's special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, part three of six parts, originally broadcast New Year's Eve and New Year's Day of 2001-2002. Dr. Larry Arne, professor, uh, president, actually, of Hillsdale College, is our guest. Uh, Dr. Arn and I are now up to Rome. We're to Cicero. And, uh, Larry, the, the, the books by Colleen McCullough, so popular in the United States, the First Man in Rome series, which begin with Gaius Marius and take us through the demise of Caesar, have really done bad things to Cicero's reputation. He comes across as a feeble, weak uh, coward, really, and, and not really someone to follow. Very different from sort of Latin students everywhere learning Cicero's orations. What do we need to know about Cicero?
2: Well, uh, I have the honor not to have read those books, and uh, so I, I won't attempt to refute them. But Cicero was a statesman, a
0: landowner,
2: a... Um, a uh, orator, a genius, a philosopher. He wrote several books that are among the most important books written in the Western world, Republic. I am particularly fond of his book on friendship. I think that's a fabulous conversation among friends and it's important and the importance of friendship and the ground and nature of friendship. Like many things that are very found in the classical world, it it is the source, I believe, of much that C.S. Lewis writes on the subject of friendship and love. Uh, and there's nothing like reading Cicero. Uh, I've read a fair amount of Cicero, much of it in recent years. Uh, I have a good friend who's an expert on it, Charles Kessler at Claremont, who's a really great young man himself, and and uh, and he's a wonderful source of information about Cicero, and he has written very nicely about the connection between the writings of Cicero and the American idea of the natural law. Uh, and if he doesn't publish that one of these days, I'm going to skin him. Uh, it's in his doctoral thesis. What, what, what happens in Cicero's writings is that the idea of the natural law becomes systematic. It becomes a theme for the first time. Um, in Greek, the word for, uh, for uh, nature is phusus, and the word for uh, law is nomos. And in, the, in, in Aristotle and Plato, those two things occur most commonly as an opposition. I wish to rise above... Nomos or convention to phusis or nature. Uh, nomos is what men do; laws are what men make, but they make mistakes, and so we're looking for a standard outside the makings of men to which comp- to compare law. This idea becomes uh, changed some in Cicero. It's interesting that it becomes changed as Rome is completing the conquest of the world, because that's where Cicero comes in Roman history. And defender, just
1: before it collapses, a republic as well.
2: That's right, a defender of the idea of the republic against empire and Caesarism, which, of course, is the story of most of Roman history, at least great Roman history. Um, in Cicero, there is a law in nature, and a certain kind of mind can give an account of it, but any kind of rational mind has contact with it, um, and and he argues in his Republic for this quite systematically. Um, he writes in that book, "I find that it has been the opinion of the wisest man, men, that law is not a product of human thought, nor is it any enactment of peoples, but something eternal which rules the whole universe by its wisdom. Reason has always existed." derived from the nature of the universe, urging men to right conduct and diverting them from wrongdoing. Now, it's interesting he says the opinions of the wisest men, because in other writings, Cicero holds up uh, Socrates as such a wise man. But you won't find that Socrates making the argument that law is, what, is not what men make. Uh, na- law is what men make, and nature is what philosophers examine to question law. So, in Cicero, he's looking for a law that reaches beyond the making of men. And he finds that the voice of that law is in us somewhere, and that great men, certain men, can give an account of it. Don't go anywhere.
1: Those great men, those certain men are are the subject of today and next Monday's program as the last radio hour, last radio day of the year, and the first radio day of the year. Give it over to the Hillsdale Dialogue, Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Don't forget as well, The Fourth Way, my new book, is also available at HughHewitt.com. Go and order 5,000 copies of it, please. Give it to all your friends. Send it to every member of Congress. They've got to embrace the Fourth Way. All these great ideas must issue forth in the new Congress, and the Fourth Way is a fraud to them. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arnold on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. To Hugh Hewitt on the last radio hour of the day. I hope you're having a great morning made even more by this edifying conversation. Last radio day of the year, I spend with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College an extended Hillsdale Dialogue. All of the one-hour Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. We're talking about Cicero. Right now, and that doesn't often come up on the radio on the first or the last day of the year. But we are talking about Cicero with Doctor Arndt. Let me let me depart for a second. For people who are wondering, why do we care about this? This is the beginning of the natural law tradition among its practitioners today. Uh, your friend, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas.
2: Exactly. That idea. That's right. And the notion of the natural law is, first of all, named in the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's a. I will repeat myself that I've been a great skeptic about whether there's any use in this exercise that we're doing here right now at all. All. The failings of you have to do with my understanding, which is limited. But I will say this. If you take anything away from this, take this conception of the natural law away, because it is a national embarrassment that during the confirmation hearings of uh, Justice Thomas, Judge Thomas then, before they made that frightful scandal about Anita Hill, they tried to make a scandal about his use of the term natural law in some of his writings and speeches before he was nominated to the Supreme Court. And there are two senators, one on each aisle, one on each side of the aisle, who ask him along the way, where did you get this odd idea? <laughs> and, you know, there's, I remember hearing it one time while the hearings were going on, and there was old Peter Jennings, you know, breaking in to comment on the hearings after this. And he didn't, he never heard of it before.
1: See, they hadn't listened to this program. It hadn't been taped yet.
2: Yeah. And of course, Peter Jennings is the sort who's immune and pervious to learning about important things anyway, but <laughs> but not most people. And anyway, the idea that, you know, I I said earlier, I mean, Lord knows if ever I've committed an extravagance It's suggesting that there's some suggestion of the natural law as early as Homer, which, of course, explicitly there certainly is not. But there is a proof of it, which is that we do all, even in our conflicts with one another, appeal to the same standard. And that means that there is an agreement among us, even as we fight about what is right and what is wrong.
1: And the natural law. This is, by the way, you've re- referred to C.S. Lewis many times. This is the beginning of mere Christianity.
2: And also the abolition of man. I mean, it's one of the burdens of that book, too. That It's not the beginning of that book, but it's one of the burdens of that book. And, you know, look, look at it this way. On his tape, Osama bin Laden, I mean, to, you know, that guy's. if there's anybody who needs killing, it's that guy. And what does he say on the tape? Among other things, he makes the point that these people that he has killed are not innocent. So why is that important? It's important because he agrees that you ought not to kill the innocent.
1: He appeals to natural law.
2: He does. Yeah. That's
1: know. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's so that no matter how many people in the United States Senate may not recognize it, the tr- the natural law tradition first explicated systematically by Cicero, right, is nevertheless at work in the world at all times that we discuss politics. So I believe. Jesus, because uh uh, you are treating with historical figures as well as divine figures here, Dr. Arn. Why did you include Jesus on this list?
2: Uh, well, there's the fact that you made me, and also because um, who could one name who's had a greater impact on history than Jesus? <laughs> it, uh, Jesus remade the world. You don't have to recur to the divine account of how he did that, although I do, to understand that. Um, Jesus is, is the central figure in a different kind of religion. Jesus is a carpenter's son, born in Palestine 2,000 years ago. It's his birthday, right around now. Jesus, differing from Abraham and from Moses and from Muhammad, who are prophets, is to be, he says that he is the incarnate Son of God. Adding to that, there is this curiosity in his career that is a very, very remarkable thing that what everyone expects of him, is that he's going to form an army, and he doesn't, and he won't. And he's going to form a government, and he doesn't, and he won't. His is a religion that will reach across boundaries of politics, which is a very interesting thing when it happens, because up until Jesus, there had always been this wedding between the political authority and the divine authority. The Spartans and the Jews, the Hebrews, got their laws from God, revealed through a prophet, and the law was divine. And disobedience to it was not just a breaking of the law, it was also a sacrilege. And the priest was a powerful political authority. But now, apparently, there is to be the ability to worship the same God in more than one country under one, more than one dispensation of the law. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. That is a demotion of Caesar, because Caesar would not agree with that. Yep. And so there is a rebellion against unlimited government, implicit in that statement.
1: Of course, eventually, and the reason people don't understand very well what you just said, is that the Roman Empire fuses christian thinking onto it and becomes an agent of christianity though i believe well would you agree with the statement christ did not intend that
2: i i do I, I, this change is so dramatic so amazing remember I, I said that thing about if you disobey a cop giving you a speeding ticket especially if you assault him the whole power of the state could be upon you here in america today yes the law is an awesome power But now, it's not to touch how you worship. That's a very important thing, to be exempted from legal authority. Limited government is born in that idea. But huge changes, both in thought and in politics, which, in my opinion, have taken centuries to work out, follow upon this revolution that is implicit in Jesus. The way for Jesus is prepared some. By the Roman Empire, of course, because the Roman Empire confronts this problem itself practically, of what will we do if we're going to govern a whole bunch of different countries and they've all got different gods. And now we're you know, and they're all gonna have an openness for citizenship. For example, you know, look, the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen and a Jew, not born in Rome. So if you're gonna have that, how are you gonna work that? And their idea at the beginning was the Pantheon. Just put their gods in there too. And then you know you can pick which ones you like, but there's something else outside God that constitutes loyalty to Rome. So, so in a certain way, there's some preparation for this in the history of the Roman Empire. Nonetheless, it's still revolutionary because it does involve an otherworldliness about religion.
1: Uh, what did you make of Richard Harris's Marcus Aurelius?
2: Oh, he was fine.
1: Yeah, he was fun.
2: Yeah, it was great. It was a. Uh, um, I, put, I put Marcus Aurelius on here because of the meditations, because I love that book, and it's a short book, and you can buy it for about five bucks from the Penguin Classics, and it's fabulous reading. Marcus Aurelius is a, an emperor after Caesarism has come over Rome. Uh, he is rightly depicted as a man who wishes some restoration of the Republic. He's also a ruthless war maker and ruler, and he's a scholar and a thinker and a philosopher, and he wrote this beautiful book. And the book is, is uh, it's, 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 it's a little hard to characterize, but I'm going to try. It's rather in the vein of stoicism, influenced by some by Christianity. Um, in Aristotle, happiness requires the practice of virtue and also good fortune. You have to have things go your way. If your kids are miserable, then you're going to be miserable. If, you're, if you don't have any money or you're put in prison, then that's too bad. You can't reach your full happiness. In Stoicism, the idea gets going that you can have your happiness independent of circumstances. Uh, there's the argument in Boethius' Confessions that you can be happy while you're inside a bronze bull bull, with a fire raging underneath it, while you're cooking, in other words. Well, Marcus Aurelius' meditations are not quite like that, but they're, they're beautiful, and they're wonderful inward reflections. I'm going to give you an example from Meditation 3-12. If you do the task before you, always adhering to strict reason with zeal and energy and yet with humanity, disregarding all lesser ends and keeping the divinity within you pure and upright, as though you were even now faced with its recall, if you hold steadily to this, staying for nothing and shrinking from nothing, Only seeking in each passing action a conformity with nature, and in each word an utterance of fearless truthfulness, then shall the good life be yours. From this course, no man has the power to hold you back. Uh, That's before me because I like to read it about time of New Year's Day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very well put, then. (laughs) Marcus Aurelius, of course, an emperor. About 180 A.D. he dies. I want to flash forward quickly because I want to spend this segment and next on Augustine. Uh, the first serious book I had taught to me was the confessions and, uh, the, the teacher was in love with the book. You probably want to talk about city of God. Let's do both.
2: Okay. Well, I, I, I'm going to, uh, Hugh, I know Hugh Hewitt. I, I confess to all who are listening is an old friend of mine and I admire him. But, uh, Because of that fact, I know that he loves Augustine, and I'm going to invite him to talk some during all this, too, because he's pretty wise on this subject. I will say of Augustine that Augustine is one of the early church doctors. He's one of the important people who helped to work out something. And that was, what are we going to make of the thinking of the world before Jesus, after Jesus? How are we going to work that out? Uh, Augustine was a brilliant young man. He was born in North Africa. He was, uh, um, he was uh, given to pleasure in ways that could be described as vice. That was a wonderful euphemism, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> when he was a young man. I'm a college president. I'm learning to use stuff. <laughs> it, uh, um, he, he, was, uh, he was a cad and a bounder, and uh, he got around. And he was also brilliant. He was a very intelligent man. And at a certain time in his life, after he was grown up, he converts to Christianity. And the next thing you know, he finds himself a priest, being a priest. Uh, He he was brought into the study of philosophy by Cicero. He read a treatise of Cicero's, and that really did um, sort of begin. It's interesting, you know, that one of these great Christian thinkers should be a student in the beginning, you know, indirectly by reading his books, of the of the most systematic of the introducers of the idea of the natural law. I guess you could give Cicero that title, maybe even a larger title. He may be the first person ever to use it as a as a good uh, to use it, not as a contradiction, but as a as an entity that is united and present in all of us. So you're, what you're
1: pause right there. What you're getting, America, is a transition. How do we go from the Romans to Christianity? How do the Christianity uh, the thinkers of Christianity bring civilization to the West. How does the West then spread all over the globe? All of that is our goal today. On the special end-of-the-year edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue, all of the Hillsdale Dialogue, going back four years now. Collected at you for Hillsdale.com. Go and binge listen. It's your New Year's resolution. Work your way through it. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arnn after this. stage. Stay tuned. America. We're wrapping up the last radio show of the year. The first radio show of the year will be a continuation of this conversation with Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College. All of them collected at you for Hillsdale.com. Let me, though, before I go, say Happy New Year to Dr. Arn and everyone at Hillsdale College who makes this possible. Happy New Year to Dwayne and to Adam and to uh, Jake and to Lynn and to everyone who helped make the show oh make it what it is this year. Happy New Year's to Danielle and to all your audiences. Oh, we do this as a special gift to you. I also like to think I wrote my new book for you, The Fourth Way, so that the new year will be productive. But the end of the year, please be safe on New Year's Eve. Maybe read some Cicero. Maybe actually listen to all the Hugh for Hillsdale Dialogues. and inspire. Make your New Year's resolutions to be as smart as these dialogues would have you become, at least as well-read as these dialogues would have you become. And then don't miss on Monday... When we are back to complete this, don't forget as well the Salvation Army Red Kettle is up and opening. But as we conclude, let's conclude with the greatest Roman lawmaker, I guess you would say, of Cicero. Let's go back to Cicero, Dr. Arn, where we left off to conclude our first and our last Hillsdale Dialogue of this year.
2: Cicero contributes some very important things to thought. Um, And partly it is the tradition of reason that is that is uh, present in the great pagan books and how it can apply in the world after Jesus, and his City of God and the Confessions too are both in part meditations on those questions. Um, he's involved, very much embroiled, in a great battle uh, that's going on within the church uh, called Manichaeanism. There are a series of battles that are like so the Aryan heresy and there's some things like that that come along where we kind of have to work out what do we how do we understand of Jesus and his teaching and Manichaeanism is a is a battle over whether there are two equal powers good and evil and it's our job to be on the side of good you could get that from the Harry Potter books I think I, I'm no yes.
1: student, a student
2: student of those books but they may lend themselves to that interpretation and and Augustine is is a very powerful advocate in that battle, and what he explains is, first of all, that's not the teaching of Jesus or of the Old Testament, but he also introduces this rational argument, which is very powerful, and and which argument is, it doesn't make any sense to claim that, because how do you know if there are two equal powers which one's the good one and which one's the evil one? Because you mean some deprecation when you use the term evil. And you mean some adulation when you mean the term good. So if they're equal, how do you know that one is to be adulated and one is to be deprecated? How do you know which is better? And, of course, there must be some standard outside the both of them by which you judge that. And whatever that standard is must be greater than they.
1: The Bishop of Hippo and the author of, among other things, Confessions and City of God. I like this because uh, while I am not myself brilliant or a person of great appetites, nevertheless, Augustine uh, is a great book to give to people who are, uh, especially the part that says take and read. In that instance, the voice that he heard in the garden, which led to his conversion to Christianity. I wonder, do you often give confessions to your young men running around Hillsdale who are both brilliant and undisciplined?
2: Um. I I uh, it's I, I, I'll confess to you I haven't I, I do have a method about that but uh, uh, you, once you say it I see that it's a great idea it is true you know by the way with young men like and every week a college president gets a discipline reports so if you're at a college like this like we impose visitation hours on the kids and so we don't let them sleep over in the various dorms and we don't have co-ed dorms here so of course there's always friction about that and we find them and. Uh, more boys get fined than girls for all kinds of offenses. Call it sexist, but I can tell you it's an empirical fact. (laughs) Um, What I do with the boys is uh, you can always find in a young man's life some pledge that they have taken. If they joined a fraternity, you know, we have fraternities here and they misbehave terribly sometimes, but I'm working on that. And the way I'm working on that is to remind them what they promised when they joined the fraternity. If they're not in a fraternity, they're usually in some society. and If they're not in some society, they're in this college. The college has a mission, and they all get told what it is when they get here. And so the way to deal with a young man is sort of like the way that Augustine got dealt with, and that is explain to him what his own account of himself is and ask him if he thinks it's manly and honorable to behave the way he's behaving. They don't like that, by the way. I'll bet not. Because it's nuclear weapons, you know. And so the first thing that happens is you get back this philosophic argument, and this is just exactly what Augustine did. You know, because he was, of course, in a way. Thank God I don't have him around here, because I'd never beat him in an argument. Older though he was at this time uh, that I am now than he was at the time when he found his conversion. Um, they they come back. It was an argument. Yeah, but it has to be just your own will, and of course you can't sustain that for a minute. But you're you're right about Augustine. Augustine was an ambitious, fun-loving, vicious in some ways. I mean, i mean having vices young man of real intellect and ability and what really happened to him was that he found a better way to go to war he was one of the church doctors who gave an account of nearly everything by the time confessions and cities of God is over and also on free will and other of his works um, but
1: he did 10 it. He seconds dr. Arn. Hmm? 10 seconds
2: ten seconds you should talk about Augustine
1: And I will only say that people ought to read him for both the account of his conversion and the understanding that take and read is the most important thing written in Western civilization. We'll be back with part four tomorrow on this The You Give It Show.